Hello and welcome to another Research at OU Law School podcast. This episode is a little bit different. Last week, Professor Simon Lee and Simon Lavis, who is a lecturer at the law school, sat down and recorded a couple of videos about the recent constitutional changes in the UK. We like to call it Judging Brexit. They cover a wide variety of topics, least of all the recent Supreme Court judgment, the referendum, and the challenges that the referendum vote brought to our democracy. The videos were aimed at OU students, but I believe that they are interesting enough for the larger law school audience, so I hope you enjoy them. Some of you may have noticed that the 50 Years Law blog is up and running, and I hope you have a look through some of its content. There is an interesting article by Robert Herrian that was also part of the exhibition at the Tate Modern. There will be other interesting things coming up in the next weeks and months, so watch this space. Hope you enjoy the show! So the Supreme Court came out with a very big judgment in uh, constitutional law, just as many students all over the country, not just open university law students, would be starting a course in constitutional law. So I guess that's exciting, but also possibly terrifying for students. Yeah, it seems to have kicked off a certain amount (laughs) of, uh, yeah, we could call it excitement, but also trepidation about what it means for the studies of constitutional law, uh, to understand them. Um, and you know whether this changes everything about the constitution, yes. constitutional law, or um, you know what, what they really need to know about it for the upcoming year. From that point of view, it's, it's better that it's happened at the beginning of the course rather than just the week before the exam. But it, it's a good illustration of a general principle about studying law that part of the challenge is to see how some new development fits in often centuries of, of tradition, and not to be intimidated by that, but to look forward to it and to understand why the law may be evolving. Absolutely, and also the new developments in law happen. You know, laws are passed that might change fundamental aspects of criminal law or you know, other areas of law um, during the course, and it's something you just, sort of, um, you just sort of have to get to grips with. But in public law, it's been a bit more unusual for things to come out that are so newsworthy and seem to so um, have a potentially radical impact on on the kind of study of the subject. It's a bit more slow-moving, sort of evolving field, usually, but it's a bit more exciting at the moment. Yes, so to reassure students, uh, it, it's always going to be the case that it, if the Supreme Court's looking at an issue, there must be a way of arguing it on either side. Otherwise, it just wouldn't be there by definition. So some set of lawyers are being paid a lot of money to argue the best possible case against the government and for the government. So a student ought to be able to pick up how to structure an argument for either side. And then often, not in this case, but often the the judges give different judgments. But even in this case where there's one judgment, which perhaps we can talk about on another occasion, uh, even then we know that senior judges hearing it at first instance disagreed with the Supreme Court. Uh, And in Scotland and in England and Wales, judges disagreed with one another. So disagreement is not something to be feared. No, that's right. There were quite senior judges in both England and Scotland who heard the case and, and, and came up with very different um, outcomes on, uh, based on very different reasoning. And so, you know, it's possible to reasonably disagree about these, uh, these things. And as you say, the Supreme Court judgment was unanimous, which is something um, that was quite interesting about it. But again, uh, you know, there were, there, were, there were arguments put forward by both parties and, um, and law and the development of law, especially in the courts, is, is, is often all about that sort of dialectic, that sort of arguing out the, the, the case in, in the context of the law. Yes. I guess a new student might also think, does it matter what I believe about Brexit and are the Supreme Court judges somehow infiltrating their views about Brexit, the substantive issue, Hmm. into their judgments. And uh, from my own point of view as an examiner, as well as a a teacher, uh, we're never in law going to be judging people according to whether they agree with us on the underlying merits. No, no, absolutely not. Um, It's about making a good reasoned legal argument in your your sort of, um, depending on what your assessment is, but in, you know, for the examiner, uh, rather than, you know, which which view you have on, on Brexit either way. Um, you know, and, and then therefore it's also kind of sensible not, not to, um, just because the political views on Brexit may not be germane to the legal issue you're arguing, you don't necessarily have to 
talk about the political views on Brexit to answer the, the legal question. So I wonder if we could help students by perhaps giving a little bit of background about our own interests. Your own research looks primarily at a particular period of, of history. Mm. Maybe we'd come to that in a second. But I thought if, if I could just say, when I was a student, which is such a long time ago, it was 1976 to 79, uh, and I studied European, as it was then called, European Community Law. Mm -hmm. So European Communities Act was in 1972. We joined on the 1st of January 1973. There was a referendum in 1975. I voted to stay in, in the European community, as was in 1975. Uh, I just turned 18, so it's the first time I got to vote. I took my A-levels. In 1976, I went to university. I was studying European community law. In 1979, I took my final exams in, in European law. But along the way, one of the issues we discussed was what if we ever wanted to withdraw from the European community, as they then said. And students thought, this is a ridiculous question. I mean, why, are we, why are we talking about that? Why don't we look at the real issues? Uh, and there were talk, talks about butter mountains and all these kinds of issues as to was the European Union agricultural policy distorting the market? And that's what students at the time wanted to talk about. Now, 40 years on, uh, it seems like quite a good idea that the tutors asked us to think about big issues. And so... Even if the question doesn't come up in the exam, that's not all that a law degree is about. And it's very important both to look at the current issues and to study the history. I don't know if you want to say anything, Simon, about your, your research looking at uh, a dark period in the law um, in Europe and how... Today, we're still interested in that and trying to learn from it. Mm. Well, first, I'd say just um, mm. talking about, you know, asking students the big questions. You know, a, a few years ago when I started tutoring public law, um, before the EU referendum question was really sort of, mm. uh, you know, some people wanted to leave the, the European Union, but it was much less um, high profile. Uh, you know, we uh, talking about parliamentary sovereignty and legal and political sovereignty of parliament and, and it, the European Union withdrawal was always something that you know, legally parliament had, would have the power to do but political, mm. politically is a very challenging thing to do and it, it looks uh, well, as, you know, maybe borne out by the current <laughs> circumstances so you sort of raise that as, um, as, as an interesting uh, you know, distinction between what, 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 what the parliament can do with its sovereignty mm. but what it might find difficult to do and obviously the referendum is another level of popular sovereignty that kind of perhaps enables potentially that, that to mm. take place. But, um, um, but even in a, in, a, in a short number of years, that, that, the, the way mm. we look at that question has changed so much, which is, which is quite interesting. Things can change quite, mm. uh, quite quickly. Um, as I said, my own, uh, my own research uh, you know, is primarily into sort of the public law of Nazi Germany um, and um, an increasing awareness of the role of... Um, law in the Third Reich in sort of moving towards the sort of catastrophic outcomes of that, mm. of that regime. And, um, and also, as you said, a, an ongoing interest in that today. And a, in a, I mean, it's never really gone away as a subject of historical interest, but a revival in terms of uh, interest in it and whether we can draw any parallels with new waves of populism and um, right-wing populism in particular across Europe. Uh, and elsewhere, and um, and constitutional moves uh, in in some countries um, that uh, you know that you know question of whether are we moving towards something anywhere close to um, uh, fascist rule, or is that is that term totally inappropriate? Is it something very different now? Yeah, and those those sort of parallels and questions are very very interesting at the moment. And, and when I was studying both constitutional law and then jurisprudence, the philosophy of law, mm. uh, and these subjects have an overlap, uh, we would look at those issues of, obviously it was a lot closer to the war then, but we looked at those issues of, well, were, were everyday legal transactions in Nazi Germany, were they law or not? Mm. Um, before you get to, to the, the big dilemmas of whether to obey an unjust law and what force it had. 
But one of the reasons we were looking at that was because in the 1960s there were cases, for instance, when what was then Rhodesia made a unilateral declaration of independence, breaking away from the constitution bequeathed by the United Kingdom. And again, the same issues would crop up, that uh, whether or not you agreed with the new regime, was it effective? Did, did that take over the legal system? And so through every generation, every decade, somewhere in the world, there'll be these kinds of questions about what is law? And at the fundamental levels of a constitution, it can be difficult to know. It could have been difficult for the prime minister's legal advisers to say what would happen until we actually got the Supreme Court judgment. I think that's right, you know, returning to the judgment, that, um, you know, that the, the, um, the prorogation power... Uh, and whether it is justiciable in the courts, and to what extent, and how, uh, you know, it's a very open-ended question uh, for the for the legal advice to the government to to try to deal with, and 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 the the, the lower courts that you know came before the Supreme Court. So, um, it's um, yeah, it's very much uh, a question of where the law, you know, where the law sits, especially. Well, it, I mean, it happens in countries with a written constitution as well, but especially when you don't have a codified constitution, and there are sort of potential gaps or you know, flexibilities in the constitution that need to be established and filled out sort of as you go along as, as cases arrive in the, in the common law system. Well, in another conversation, we'll look at the judgment. Mm. But just to conclude on this then, uh, I'm, I'm struck by how events in, in the wider world mirror the hypothetical questions I was asked as a student, not only in this case, but for instance, extinction rebellion tactics of protest gluing themselves to, to the ground or to a building or to a lorry. It's the kind of question we always asked in constitutional law problems. You know, if there's a demonstration and people are doing this, do the police have powers to do that? And similarly then, I think the conclusion of this conversation is that if students have been asked, say, last year, uh, should a Prime Minister try to prorogue Parliament for five weeks just before a Brexit deadline, would the courts intervene? You could have answered it in different ways. You could have answered it like the Attorney General seems to have done and said, no, it's not justiciable. Uh, or you could have been more adventurous and said, I think the courts would intervene if you made that kind of bold decision as a Prime Minister. Uh, that would be subject to challenge. But either way, we the examiners would be looking at your arguments, not necessarily whether we agree with you on the outcome. Yes. So let's turn to the judgment in the recent Supreme Court prorogation case. Mm -hmm. Sometimes people call it Miller 2, sometimes Cherry, sometimes prorogation, sometimes Supreme Court case. Uh, but everybody knows what we're talking about, which is in itself quite interesting and quite different from the days when I studied law a long time ago, when you wouldn't know that it was then the House of Lords Judicial Committee was giving a judgment. You certainly couldn't see it on TV or hear it on the radio. And uh, it being before the internet, you wouldn't have got a hold of a copy of the judgment. But here we are sitting with this judgment. And the first thing which strikes me is there are 11 judges. Uh, and the second thing which strikes me is that they've all agreed on a single judgment. So from the point of view of, of students, maybe in a, in a group, again, whether they're open university students or not, would it actually be easier to write a judgment collectively as a group or to write it on your own. And, and why do it as one judgment when the law often has different judges giving what, they own, what their own view is? So that's an interesting feature of the judgment before we get to the, to the first paragraph. Mm. Yes, it is. And I think it may be, I mean, it's a challenge of it having to be written so quickly because it mm. came out so soon after the case was decided in a couple of days um, to get everyone sort of on the same page, mm. literally and uh, <laughs> figuratively. But also perhaps, you know, a, a kind of focus to do so because, you know, to marshal, I don't know, a handful of different judgments, you know, written separately and try and work out the kind of common reasoning or whatever, you know, could be more challenging. So maybe it may be partly a, a function of, um, of, of uh, what would be, the, you know, the circumstances uh, as well. But, um, but, yeah, in this case, to have so many eminent judges in agreement and finding a path through such a complex mm. and um, politically heated issue, legal issue, uh, you know, with, with 
that you know, reaching reaching mm. the same judgment is quite interesting. So anybody can just put into a search engine Supreme Court judgment, you'll find it very easily. And on the first page, it also tells you that the judgment was given on the 24th of September, uh, which was a Tuesday, and the hearing had been the 17th, 18th and 19th. So I think in their minds, they wanted to give judgment uh, within a week. Mm. Uh, and, and that's a phenomenal achievement. The case itself had only started in the lower courts uh, relatively recently. They had three days of hearing. And, and when you get the judgment, you turn to the second and, and third pages, and it's got a long list of lawyers. There's a lot of lawyers involved in this. Because it's not just the two sides, there's also people intervening. And, and one of those interveners was Sir John Major, a previous Prime Minister, who clearly had quite an influence on proceedings. Another one was Baroness uh, Shami Chakrabarti, the Shadow Attorney General, also, I think, influential. So there's a lot of lawyers involved, a lot of work by them, obviously. Uh, and then we get to the judgment itself, and it's given by, it says, L Lady Hale and Lord Reed, who's the Deputy President of the Supreme Court, and is going to succeed her uh, at the beginning of next year when she has to retire. Uh, he's going to be the next President. And the two of them are giving the judgment, although you probably heard or saw on radio or TV Lady Hale giving a summary of it. But the two of them are giving it on behalf of the court. So it's a single judgment of, of everybody. That is unusual, uh, as we've said. Uh, what would you do, Simon, if you were a judge and you didn't actually agree with one of the 60, 70 paragraphs? Would you say, well, I'm going to dissent or I'm going to give my own concurring judgment? Mm -hmm. I want to stick out for this paragraph. Or would you say, OK, whatever, um, let's, let's drop what I'm saying here. It's an interesting question. Yeah, maybe somewhere in between um, complete blaser <laughs> and absolute. But but yeah, you're, you're often you know there will be other judgments that in large part agree with the the sort of lead judgment as it were, but in, on certain issues have some discrepancies or want to make a slightly different argument or bring out different reasoning. Um, and then dissenting judgments, which may agree in some areas, but disagree in fundamental mm. areas that mean they, they are dissents. So it is, it is quite an achievement and quite unusual um, to find this. And I think reading the judgment, uh, um, perhaps that is why it is, it is quite narrowly and carefully constructed um, in order that, or not, you know, or the, mm. the, the way they could find to agree was, was, that, um, was to... Was to construct the argument in, in, in quite a narrow way, sort of carve a very sort of um, careful path through the legal issues and the constitutional issues. Yes, yeah, so one thing these 11 judges might have done, and a group might do if they have an exercise as a, as a set of students, you might say, whatever we're going to decide, let's decide unanimously, mm. because otherwise our judgment is going to be picked apart by people who disagree. Um, now, often you don't do that, but supposing you were going to do that, then you say, well, somebody, why don't you draft, draft it? And I think it tends then to be a more bland, a more high-level abstract judgment rather than going into too much detail, because the more detail you go into, one of the 11 might disagree. Mm. But we, we can compare this with the first Miller case, which was heard in December 2016 and judgment was given in January 2017. And also again, in quite short order for... Very, at the time, I <laughs> thought that was amazingly fast. Yeah. Um, and, and, and anybody can read that, and that's got a majority judgment of eight of the 11, a slightly different group of 11. Uh, but then there are three dissents, and uh, you can look at why they disagree, and that's the, the normal interplay. So they're talking about a prerogative power, whatever that is, and that, there's a lot of debate about that in constitutional law. Uh, and one of the issues is whether the prerogative is justiciable, which is quite difficult even to say, yes. let alone to to understand. Do you think that the judges have explained their position on that well? Um, yeah, I think, I think generally the judgment is firstly uh, quite short for a mm -hmm. Supreme Court judgment or any court judgment, especially on a, a complex case. It helps that there's, there's a single judgment in a way, mm. but it's quite short. And in general, it's quite clearly and accessibly written, so a good one for students to to, to read, um, I think the language is, 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 is very clear. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, they, they, uh, they, do, they do sort of carefully walk through and explain um, um, the, you know, the, the, the prerogative power and the, the proceedings um, that led to this point as well. So I think that's, that, is, that is quite well done. So 
they could have gone down the route of saying this isn't something that we should look at and, and the, the word for that is it's not justiciable, it's not capable of being judged and the court below in the system of England and Wales which adopted that approach was saying because there's no real yardstick by which lawyers can judge it's more a question of politics you prorogue for five weeks or two weeks or two months where are you going to draw the line and what are you going to relate it to but, but they took a different view. Hmm. And I think they'd also decided that they weren't going to give an order specifying anything very much. They just expect the government to take the decision again and, um, uh, is one route. And, and their actual route was to say, well, it just hasn't had any effect. So Parliament can reconvene, uh, resume as if this prorogation hadn't happened. So they got rid of the issue of exactly what remedy do you give quite I think, well, from their point of view. And then they were worried, I think, that um, they'd be drawn into judging the motives of, of the Prime Minister. Uh, and they tried to say that that wasn't an issue. Mm. The question was, really, were there any reasons for the prorogation which stood up? Yes. What was the effect of the prorogation on, on Parliament and particularly the fundamental principle of parliamentary sovereignty? And then, and, you know, were there adequate reasons for that? A prorogation made a bit easier in this case, perhaps because the government didn't really put forward mm. reasons for what was considered to be an exceptional yeah. prorogation. Um, so uh, they didn't have to uh, get too much into the, the weeds of the reasoning. Um, but all of those points you raised are really on the question of the boundary between the law and the politics. And mm. the courts, and the court in this case, and generally very much trying to stay within the realm of interpreting the law and not making political judgments and political decisions and questioning the motives of the government uh, might have been moving too much into the political sphere. Um, ordering some sort of specific kind of action to happen might also have been sort of, you know, moving into the political sphere, whereas they wanted very much, it seems, to stop short of that and ground this very clearly within... Um, Within, within the sort of legally, role, legal interpretation role. And they talk a bit about the separation of powers mm. uh, in the judgment in terms of uh, sort of those questions. Okay, so let's take just three paragraphs from, I think it's 71 paragraphs. Um, the first paragraph uh, says, this case arises in circumstances which have never arisen before and are unlikely ever to arise again. It is a one-off but our law is used to rising to such challenges and supplies us with the legal tools to enable us to reason to a solution. Well, judges always say that, uh, but I'm not sure that's true, that it's a one-off, because it could even happen again, even this month. Mm. There could be another similar case, possibly caused by this. But but why, why are they saying all that? And... Well, there's, there's a sense in which every case is a unique set of <laughs> specific set of facts mm-hmm. um, and, um, and also a sense in which there's a kind of more universal <laughs> rule or principle that can yep. be drawn out of it. And, and one of the challenges of a student is to, uh, you know, uh, studying the subject is to, you know, work, look at a, maybe yep. a different fact pattern and figure out where the analogies are with the existing case and where, where, the, where the differences are, where the distinctions are. And judges do the same thing, looking at past cases um, and trying to work out where you know, where, where the analogies can be drawn that mean that principles can be taken over from other cases um, in the common law system. Okay, so, so right at the beginning we can be sceptical. Mm. And I, I want to point next into paragraph 7, where they say, uh, technically the result of the referendum was not legally binding, but the government had pledged to honour the result and it's since been treated as politically and democratically binding. Successive governments and parliament have acted on that basis. I, I'm not sure, that, again, that that's right, it seems to me that quite a lot of people in Parliament don't agree that it's binding. Uh, and whatever technically means, and whatever democratically binding means, this is very controversial, but they state it as if everyone knows. Yeah, it's interesting. And, you know, there, there was... You know, the government, uh, before the referendum, tried to make it clear from a policy point of view that they would enact the result of the referendum. Yes. I think, as, from a, you know, as a legal, if you take it, try and take it as a legal rule, it's very difficult um, to nail down with certainty what the result of the referendum means in terms of specifics of how you actually go about leaving the European Union. So yeah. treating it as um, binding in a sort of more general sense, which I think they're, they're getting at, um, 
it's um, it, it, it's um, it's perhaps different from from actually saying that it's um, you know binding in any specific way that could be could be performed by by the government and parliament. But it is it is controversial. And perhaps the court there um, sort of uh, at least saying that we are not uh, you know we're not questioning the result of the referendum here in this judgment. Mm. That is not our purpose here. That's you know that's again a political issue. What we're doing is. Is 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 um is accepting that the government is trying to enact and Parliament too to an extent trying to to um trying to give effect to the result of the referendum, but we have to deal with this legal question in front of us. Okay, and finally, for for this part of our conversation, uh, when we get to the fundamental principles of constitutional law, so uh, paragraph forty one says two fundamental principles of our constitutional law are relevant to the present case. The first is the principle of parliamentary sovereignty. I was absolutely certain that they would say the second principle is the rule of law, but they didn't. Mm. Uh, and uh, possibly students all over the country, possibly all over the world, would have expected that, or separation of powers, possibly, or something like that. But by the time they got to tell us what the second constitutional principle was, paragraph 46, they say it's parliamentary accountability, mm. which I've never heard of as a second fundamental constitutional principle. Uh, and I went into a legal bookshop in, in the Inns of Court in London last week, and I looked in all the constitutional law books. I couldn't see any which, which had this principle in them. So what do you think about that as, as, as a, somebody teaching public law? Is that a problem? Yeah, the court sort of tries to make a fist of saying that <laughs> the you know, courts have treated parliamentary accountability as a, as a principle in the past. Um, there doesn't seem to be an enormous amount of evidence for that. Um, but... Um, but they're, 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 you know, they're, they're trying to say that there are other examples they give where parliamentary sovereignty isn't, isn't you know, only narrowly constructed as, as the law of parliament being the highest, highest law of the land that can't be questioned, that there are other things that are almost prerequisites or come around parliamentary sovereignty to give effect to it, without which, um, without which it, can't be, uh, it, you know, it can't operate. And one of these, in this case, is they say the effect of the prorogation um, uh, is to um, is to prevent Parliament from, you know, having the opportunity to exercise its sovereignty, and so um, they're seeing parliamentary accountability as 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 a, as a principle in the sense that it that it underpins the most fundamental principle of um, of the Constitution, parliamentary sovereignty. Um, certainly, eyebrows are raised about whether. Um, whether parliamentary accountability can really be seen as a fundamental constitutional principle um, uh, or a constitutional principle at all. But it's part of the kind of um, the way that the courts are able to bring um, the issue of the effect of the prorogation on sovereignty into position to kind of Mm. talk about it and make a judgment on it, I think. Thank you. So... It doesn't seem as if it really was a fundamental principle, but maybe it is now, <laughs> because the Supreme Court has <laughs> maybe cited has said that. such in future. <laughs> and so the next time, mm. of course, they said there wasn't really going to be a next time because it was a one-off. But we can ignore that, perhaps, for these purposes, and say there probably will be a next time. It might come soon. And supposing it was something to do with the referendum and its impact, people might say, "Well, that paragraph seven. Don't worry about that, because that wasn't really central." to this decision, that was what lawyers say, it's over to dicta, comments by the way. But but on this one, they probably say, this is fundamental to the decision. And so we have got to the position where the Supreme Court has, has given a new twist to the law, a new interpretation to the law. But it does depend to some extent on whether the Supreme Court follows that up in future cases, and indeed how the other political actors and the country react to, to this continuing saga. So I think on another occasion we need to look at the implications of Brexit more broadly, but this gives a sense to students, uh, I trust, of, of how you and I might look at this judgment. It's what's surprising, but it's certainly intriguing, and uh, as you said, Simon, it's, it's accessible. Anybody can understand this judgment. You don't have to agree with it. Mm. So Simon, by popular demand, people seem to want to know more about the detail of the case. Uh, for instance, some of the terminology is a bit confusing to, to new students of the law. So just what is a prerogative? Uh, how has it evolved? 
and have the courts manage to say it's up to them to decide, in this case anyway, whether or not it's been exercised properly. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting. One of the main um, principles that is talked about around this case is parliamentary sovereignty. But while that is important to the case, it's, it's, it's um, first and foremost about the court's ability to review what is called a prerogative power. And the prerogative powers are um, effectively the powers of the executive branch, the government, independent um, of uh, the law of parliament and the common law to, to, to do things. So they are the residue of what used to be the, um, the monarch's powers um, to do things that, that, that are sort of left over and that Parliament hasn't, hasn't taken upon itself. So one of the main examples of that are lots of things to do with international law and treaties, mm. making treaties and withdrawing from treaties and things like that. And in the first Miller case, that was one of the, you know, that was why it was such an interesting uh, and difficult question for the courts, um, because on the face of it, it is a prerogative power of the executive to be able to, um, you know, uh, conduct and, and withdraw from yeah. treaties. But in the case of the um, treaties around the European Union, um, we have the European Communities Act and UK law, and um, and a very complex integration of the systems. Uh, and so, whether in that particular case the executive could notify the union of wanting to withdraw from the European Union, um, independent of Parliament, say, was up for grabs. Um, so, um, but yeah, that, that's kind of the, one of the main areas where prerogative power exists, but it exists in a number of different areas. And a lot of the areas are, you know, bordering on essentially political questions and decisions. So the issue in this case about the justiciability of um, prerogative power, so this prerogative power to probe Parliament, um, whether the Supreme Court has within its jurisdiction the ability to make this decision is, um, uh, is, is there because, um, you know, proroguing Parliament may be seen as an essentially political act. Yes. So this takes us to issues about the Constitution. Mm. Sometimes uh, lay people rather than lawyers or law students say what we really need is a written constitution to which the standard answer of a law student or a lawyer would be well we have a constitution and almost all of it is written in one form or another. What you really mean is should we have a codified constitution where we set in one document at one point in time the crucial rules or at least the principles. And the argument against that is, well, it would soon become out of date because you need to um, keep the law in tune with the times. And, for instance, if you'd done it 200 years ago, it wouldn't have included votes for women. But now everybody would obviously think it should do. So that's a, that's a debate that goes on. Uh, and then there's also the issue that in the, in the particular context of the United Kingdom, some of the magic or aura of the Constitution and of the society seems to be tied up with this long history in which there's been a gradual evolution rather than a revolution or a defeat in war uh, or a, a, a complete change in the legal system. And so there is something about adjusting power from, as you said, the monarch to elected politicians over centuries. But interestingly now, the courts, who are unelected themselves, seem to be muscling in on... Uh, you can understand it if they were muscling in on the monarch's powers, but it's really the elected politicians' powers in government. So that, that's the controversy, in a way. Hmm. And in this case, you know, the, the, it's often said in, in defence of courts, in a way, they, they can only deal with the cases that are put before them mm. and they, they you know so um, muscling in perhaps suggests a slightly more proactive um, yeah. stance <laughs> they have whereas you know they, oh, they, they could have said this is not just discipline and left it at that but um, uh, as to some extent the, 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 the um, lower court in, in England did but um, they you know when they're asked to decide a question ultimately when no one else can, can decide yes. it. You know, so they're left to... So they're the decision maker of last resort. Of last resort on the Constitution. But they don't have initiative. Yeah. The power of initiative. So uh, a government or parliament can say, let's look at this area of the law. And they can change the law, uh, at least 
the government can change the law if it can persuade a majority in the House of Commons and then get it through the Lords. For instance, in the last session of Parliament, we had changes uh, in the law which came from backbench MPs on uh, issues including upskirting, which became a, a criminal offence uh, after a campaign by a member of the public and supported by backbench MPs, uh, and a law requiring house builders to, to make sure that the letterbox is at a reasonable height so that uh, the men and women delivering the post don't have to bend down and get a bad back. Mm. And that was put through by the effectively the trade union campaign, uh, which was picked up by a backbench MP. So that's, those are examples of the power of initiative from elected politicians, uh, which gives them much more scope to be creative. So I, I take that, that the judges have to wait for somebody to come to them. Mm. But in this case, how did they get round that centuries-old tradition of deference to the prerogative powers? And, and is it a convincing manoeuvre? Mm. Well, there's, um, just on, on, on the first point, there's been an interesting development that's been related to some extent having small majority mm. um, or minority or coalition governments in, 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 the, in the last few years, um, as well as, I think, some, um, some sense that the executive had become too strong within Parliament, and so cause the mm. executive, obviously, in the UK system sits within the Parliament and um, doesn't have independent elected authority. Uh, and, um, you know, uh, and so to reassert um, Parliament's kind of um, uh, position. Mm. So there's been there's been a move to you know give more time for debates initiated by backbench MPs or opposition parties and uh, and more scope to um, to d- to debate um, issues that aren't um, that aren't brought forward by the government. And that's been particularly the case recently. We've seen in in Brexit with the. Um, with the, the standing order, mm. you know, question of who controls the business of the parliament and, 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 the, and the ultimate the passage of the Ben Act, um, the, the famous, infamous Ben Act. Um, so that is, um, that is perhaps one reason why the courts were, were handed this question because, because of this fine balance at the moment with a, with a minority government that's, that's losing its, that's not, uh, you know, its minority rule is, is even decreasing as we, as we go on. And, um, and Parliament... Well, Yes, well, sorry to interrupt, but there's an interesting parallel there to, to, to my student days, if you go back to the 1970s. In those days, the left in British politics seemed to be opposed to judges intervening, mm. partly because there was a Labour government for a considerable period of time, uh, and it was losing in the courts. But the answer to that, I think, was it was losing in the courts partly because it didn't really have a working majority, and it was trying to do things by executive power because it couldn't change uh, a statute. Uh, and now, at the Labour Party conference, uh, the judges got a standing ovation when news came through that they made this decision. So I don't think judges are deciding in a certain way just because they're from a certain background or they all think in the same way or uh, to do with their politics or what they think about Brexit. But I, I think you're right that if... If the politicians have, or one or two politicians have more power and haven't got a majority to support it, then uh, they will have a, a higher burden uh, of um, proof or responsibility put on them by the courts. I mean, the court monitor says that, that only the Prime Minister effectively can prorogue, but that carries with it a responsibility to have reasons for doing it in a certain way. And as far as they could see, he had no reason, let alone a good reason, I think mm. they say at one point. So if you, if you almost use a prerogative power to its absolute limits, you're going to get into trouble. Yeah, there are more pressures and tensions in the system. This government is obviously in, a, in quite a tight spot in terms mm. of what, how to achieve its policy on Brexit. And so it has to, um, you know, it's had to take executive decisions that, that, are, that are unusual or closer to the limits or, you know, and so that, that has led... Uh, that has led to them being challenged. Um, so it is, it is definitely a function of, of the, the, the kind of situation we're in rather than, as you say, judges wanting to, wanting to have their political... And another way in which the, the law edges forward can be illustrated by uh, the GCHQ case in, in the 1980s. This is where Mrs Thatcher 
said, uh, without consulting with the unions at the government communication headquarters in Cheltenham, GCHQ, that uh, national security meant that they, they couldn't um, uh, go on strike, for instance. Uh, and um, uh, the courts uh, were asked to review that by the union, uh, and the courts ultimately said Mrs Thatcher was entitled to make that decision because of national security, but they rejected the idea that they couldn't look at it at all because it was a prerogative power, because they're servants of the crown. Mm. And so sometimes the courts can say, well, we're not going to give a remedy in this case because it's trumped by national security, but we're moving forward and we are saying, in principle, we would intervene mm. were it not for that. Yes, and so national security is one of the areas of high policy that the courts are very reluctant to intervene in. Um, but we have seen, as uh, um, you know, coming out of the GCHQ case, subsequent cases, um, a gradual um, willingness of the courts to review certain prerogative powers under certain circumstances, developing over time and saying, as they do um, uh, in this judgment, going back in some cases to centuries old. Uh, previous judgments, that it is the role of the courts under the separation of powers to supervise the exercise of the law by the executive. Um, and so to, to, yes, to come back to this question of, of deference to, um, mm. uh, to the government and, and, and whether the moves of the court are convincing, they, um, yeah, they say they sort of take very careful steps, uh, each one, well not, not every one, but in some cases kind of moving the, that sort of law that, uh, 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 in terms of the ability of the courts to review um, the prerogative power and this particular prerogative power and on what grounds they've done so, moving the law forward slightly in some areas and other areas um, in, order to, um, uh, in order to come to this decision while trying to say they're remaining deferent to the sort of political role of the executive to exercise its its prerogative power. So, you know, they they they, they say that uh, as I say that um, uh, we you know you've said the prerogative is is in principle justiciable by the courts um, under certain circumstances, and then they talk about um, this particular prerogative power to probe Parliament uh, and. Um, the fact that in this case they say it's had an, an impact on a fundamental constitutional principle, yes. parliamentary sovereignty, and that they are only doing something the courts have always done, which is scope the limits of the power and not actually decide whether the exercise of the power within its legal limits was reasonable. They're saying we're just drawing the lines around which the prerogative can... And this is why this is a great case for mm. new students of constitutional law, because it, it involves almost everything. Mm. And I guess that one of the things we're saying is, as in so many walks of life more generally, uh, a bipolar approach to something, you're either for this or against it, or you're either uh, of this gender or that gender or this persuasion or that persuasion, that, that actually there's more fluidity here in the Constitution. And it's not just law or politics. It's not just the prerogative or Parliament or the courts. But actually, we have to understand the complex relationships between the different institutions which make up the Constitution. Yeah. Um, and these sort of binary oppositions, uh, you know, uh, the politics of the day at the moment is increasingly being drawn in these terms. Mm. You either remain or you're Brexit. You're mm. either, um, you know, uh, 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 trying to... Scupper the whole Brexit project, or yes. you're trying to definitely leave with no deal. Yeah. Um, whereas, and obviously those are those are the political issues. But um, in this judgment and in the in, in the constitutional questions, you can yes, you can see a lot more nuance and a, the careful evolution over time of, of of some of these things that 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 have a um, you know an, uh, some extension in some areas. In this case, which you can see the development over over time in the courts. Good. So. That's a convenient moment to pause, and in our next conversation we need to look at that challenge between fluidity in identity and the, the Brexit yes or no. But for, for now what we're saying is that this court judgment is uh, a work of art in a way, whether or not you agree with it, mm. in trying to show how something which you thought was definitely the case, that the prerogative would not be reviewable in certain circumstances, over time... 
that doctrine can become attenuated or it can be challenged, become weaker, and then in the right circumstances the court will take a, a bold move and then we have to see in future cases whether that holds. That's the Constitution. So sorry, I don't know if law uh, students generally would be um, having to study this, but uh, the issue of a referendum you touched on, and that's, let's say, a new element in our constitutional democratic understanding in the last few decades. Mm. But clearly, uh, Dicey observed it in Switzerland uh, and recommended it as a kind of political device when he thought Parliament might vote, in his mind, the wrong way on Irish Home Rule. So it's been there in the background, but I wonder if that's an example of the wider implications of this Brexit saga for our understanding of our democracy over the next few years, perhaps the future of the Union, perhaps the voting system for the Commons, perhaps other issues? Well, it's interesting because the fallout from the referendum complex as it's, as it's been, has nevertheless led to calls for further referenda <laughs> yes. on, um, you know, whether it's the second Scottish referendum or second Brexit referendum or other referendum. Um, and in recent decades, and perhaps with increasing pace in recent years, as you say, we've had referenda, so um, the alternative vote system referendum, mm. obviously the Scottish, um, uh, the Scottish independence referendum and the Brexit referendum. And so... The challenge is um, that there is no sort of constitutional framework for a referendum to take place. Mm. It requires a specific piece of legislation to set out the terms and um, how it will work and the question and all or the franchise, all those kind of things. Um, in each case, with a very, very limited sort of framework, statutory framework within which to work. So there isn't, and, and, and even beyond that, the kind of, the sovereign role of the people underpinning mm. the kind of formal sovereignty of Parliament is not really that well elucidated, understood um, within the Constitution. Um, and again, broadly, it's, an, it, it's perhaps an example of where Parliament in, a, in an individual statute can do something like that. Um, but in it, in it could do things like introduce the Fixed-Term Parliament Act, for example, mm. which may have served its purpose narrowly between 2010 and 2015 with the coalition government, but now it's causing all sorts of problems for a government desperate for an election and a parliament you know, that has other priorities at this mm. moment. Um, and whether that, whether the individual statutes on devolution to the nations, House of Lords reform and things like that, um, a, lot, a lot of the times they're, they're individual moves that lack a kind of constitutional framework within which they sit, that, and, but they're big constitutional moves. So it becomes quite a challenge, quite a tension within the constitution. Yes, so uh, you you might have thought that referendums wouldn't be very popular now, given the mess. Mm. But the reaction seems to be more, as you say, partly we may need another referendum to sort this one out. (laughs) But also we need to learn lessons from what's gone uh, right or wrong in uh, not just this referendum, but the Scottish independence referendum. One of the things seems to be the use of it as a political device. Mm on the assumption that the government that's called it thinks it's going to win, mm. without really thinking through what happens if you lose. Yes. That seems to be a big concern. Uh, and there would be ways of sorting that out, wouldn't there, in terms of uh, some independent body monitoring. At the moment, the, the actual question has to be approved, but it could look at the conditions under which uh, the whole thing is conducted. For instance, in in Ireland, there have been um, various referendums on, for instance, abortion law, Mm -hmm. uh, and it's gone different ways. But ultimately, the last time the people in the Republic of Ireland voted, it was clearly set out the kind of law that would come in if they voted to allow it at all. Mm -hmm. And with the benefit of hindsight, you might say, the kind of deal that might have been aimed for, obviously you can't be certain what the other side of the negotiation will agree, but the kind of deal it might be aimed for could have been set out, I suppose. Mm. Uh, Even early on in the saga after the referendum, we heard talk of Canada or Norway, plus or plus plus. There were ways of describing the kind of thing you were aiming for. Do you think that's the way that the Constitution will go? 
I think to try and overcome this sort of chaos, we might, we, if we're going to continue to use referendums, you need some sort of small formal structure. Mm. Because, you know, with the, you mentioned the last Irish referendum, also there seemed to be a much more structured, deliberative process as mm. part of that um, decision. Whereas this, you know, Brexit referendum seemed a much more piecemeal ad hoc process. So it, it was announced it, it would happen, legislation was passed, then, you know, it's, it's, it's only an advisory, it's a political move in Darcyan terms because it's only advisory um, and nothing in the statute said it would be seen as binding. But then the government took a policy decision to say it would be implemented. Mm. But then because the government effectively lost, then it resigned. <laughs> David Cameron resigned as prime minister. And so, you know, um, a new government took over. And so, yes, there was no certainty, no structure, no no thinking about, um, I suppose, you know, what would happen next if, if the government lost, um, beyond perhaps resigning. Um, and perhaps because they weren't expecting to. And I think that it could be a lesson hopefully to future governments in that, that, um, you know, they weren't that far away from losing the Scottish independence referendum and did did lose from the government of the day's point of view the Brexit referendum. Um, the, you need, there needs to be some sort of clearer structure and framework, otherwise um, otherwise you're left with a, a real mess afterwards to sort out. And there are two things which I think students might want to consider coming out of what you say there. One is... You might want to pluck an example from another jurisdiction. Mm. We've chosen ones close to home. But let's take another example. New Zealand, mm. the Prime Minister a few years back decided, almost out of thin air, to raise the issue whether there should be a new flag. Because at the moment it contains a small version of the Union flag or the Union Jack. Uh, uh, but that was agreed that they would, they would look at it and they had a good process, I think, which was to commission uh, or to invite designs and to commission designs, to have a process, a, a long list, a short list. Then the public voted on the best alternative. Once they got that, they then had a referendum on the best alternative against the current flag, uh, and the current flag won. So you could say, well, it was a waste of time, but actually it was probably a good process mm. to go through. And something like that, depending on what the issue is, obviously, mm. but you know, something like that could be considered. But if somebody in constitutional law classes says, what about America, Switzerland, Ireland, New Zealand, then we have that process of, of legal reasoning or any kind of reasoning, which is, well, there are some similarities, but maybe you're talking about a different kind of culture, political culture, different kind of issue, different time. And, and I think that's an important issue, that's number one. Number two is, have we ended up trivialising the vote in, in a political context? Possibly because we're now used to voting in other contexts. Uh, if you vote for X Factor, Britain's Got Talent, Love I'm Island, I'm a celebrity, dancing, Strictly uh, Come Dancing. Yeah. If you're voting uh, a couple of years ago to keep in Ed Balls because you think it's funny, mm. Then, when you've got a referendum involving people like Ed Balls, do you vote for or against a proposition because you don't like Mr Cameron or Mr Johnson or whoever it might be? Or can we all see that these are different and you might have a bit of fun with some vote, but this is very serious? So two two questions. What's the value of comparative law or politics? And secondly, what about the vote itself? Oh, easy questions. Um, <laughs> by the way, I think Ed Balls was a better dancer than he was given credit for. Um, the, I thought you were going to say that then he was a politician. No, no. Well, also. <laughs> um, uh, I think comparative law is very useful. I think, uh, you know, we, we teach comparative aspects to the UK Constitution here uh, and public law, and I think that it is important to set in context the UK Constitution, which can often be seen as a unique you know, outcome of a, mm. of a specific historical process, which it is, but so is every constitution. And, mm. uh, and, and you, you can see still dealing with similar issues in many cases. Um, but you do need to, you know, some constitutional frameworks have codified uh, accounting for referendums in there. Um, and obviously the UK uncodified constitution doesn't have. So you, you do have to be careful um, when 
making com- comparisons of what you're comparing, how you're comparing, and which which things are like for like. And so political culture is as much a part of that as kind of uh, legal doctrine. Um, but definitely they are valuable, and I think it would be sensible to start somewhere by looking around if we were to try and to adopt some sort of framework for mm. referendums in the future. Um, in terms of taking the vote seriously? Yes. Do you think that's been an issue or not? I wonder how strong a sense of um, the, pur- the democratic purpose, the purpose of voting and representative democracy and government, how, you know, how strong that sense is and whether that's been clouded, whether, whether by you know, voting in you know, reality TV or whatever, or whether by um, sort of personality politics, which may mm. be related to that, that I'll, you know. Um, uh, I don't, I, I think, you know, perhaps we could do more to understand why we vote and how our, how, how our vote is, is transferred into mm. action at a government level. Yes, uh, and I think that's important, and it relates back to a, an issue in the judgment, which is about... Uh, the constitutional responsibility of the Prime Minister in exercising this prerogative. The court was in effect saying uh, you shouldn't be using words like rigmarole to describe the prorogation ceremony and so on because it suggests you are trivialising your constitutional role. You've got to take it responsibly. Mm. Uh, And similarly, the court itself has to be responsible and when people criticise, as, as students and, and lecturers do, uh, the judges or the politicians for just deciding because they're against the EU or they're pro-Brexit or against Brexit or they're Ramonas or whatever, maybe we're just accusing other people of, of our own faults. But if they've got a responsible position, then you'd like to think that they were taking it very seriously. Mm. And maybe that's one of the issues that we come to in a, in a constitutional law course about feeling a sense of duty uh, to take these important decisions for the common good. But as you say, it gets mixed up with personality politics and also the media, who I think are very important. Uh, and I'll use that word again, the trivialization of the personalities of the judges or what they're wearing or those kinds of things. Uh, there is a value in the majesty of the law uh, and the symbolism of the law. And I think that the giving of reasons in public is a very important contribution which the courts make. Yes, and I think a lot of the language used by politicians and the media has been trivialising and reductive of the views of the other side mm. and, um, and uh, divisive or pejorative. Um, and that doesn't help us to take on those duties seriously, I think, because there's a sort of a response to the increasing heightened rhetoric of the other side and, and so on. And I think the, um, yeah, the fairly reasoned presentation of, you know, in contrast to the government, which was unwilling to give reasons really for the mm. prorogation um, beyond what appeared to be a fairly evident sort of facade... Um, the court, you know, by by uh, sort of uh, yeah, pu- publicly giving reasons, as you say, and often requiring public bodies to give to give reasons, it plays an important role in that sort of process, which needs to be deliberative and um, and and sort of um, not not trivialised. To use the word you can use it. Yeah, and so to to conclude our series of conversations, going back to my postgraduate studies of law, which were in in America. Mm. A phrase that was used there was about high constitutional moments. Sometimes there are very special issues in America, probably to do with slavery, race discrimination, the quest for equality. Here it looks like uh, Brexit and independence for the different parts of the United Kingdom. And these high constitutional moments need to be treated seriously. You need to have a big public debate, preferably before the decisions, uh, and you need then to learn the lessons from it for the everyday constitutional issues uh, of uh, the next generation. So I hope that these conversations have, have prompted uh, students and others to think about how to take lessons from Brexit forwards into 
our democracy. Simon, thank you very much. Again, thank you for listening to this podcast. As ever, you can find out more about the law school at our website. Don't forget to also visit the 50 Years blog. You can find the link to it in the show notes. The music in the background is Endless Love by Dirty Mac. Take care and hope to see you again.